Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 14, 22, For Real Love Won't Cure Addiction. They say when you are least looking for it, that's when it arrives. Love, magic, destiny, all better when they arrive together. While backing out of Rick Edelman's driveway, a kind and eccentric dude that we all knew, after buying weed from him, a van pulled up waiting to take my spot in his driveway. I didn't recognize the vehicle or know the driver, but when I glanced over my shoulder to signal that he could have the spot, I could have sworn I saw the reflection of a star twinkling in his eye. It was probably just the street lamp, but it took me by surprise and sent a small jolt of electricity shimmering through my body. For what felt like an eternity while space and time stopped, we just sat there gazing, gazing, gazing at each other while the aforementioned street lamp cast a small golden halo of light around his head. Although it was not quite an eternity, it was long enough for my foot to start trembling, having been resting on the brake for the whole time. And because of that, I knew something was afoot. I sprung back to real life when his voice yelled out to me, My band is playing at the Owls Club tonight. Come see us. I knew of the Owls Club, but had never been. It was deep in the heart of the black neighborhood, and I could barely find the unmarked building. But that didn't matter, because I was on a mission of fate, and every little voice in my body screamed out the correct directions to the place where I would find for real love this time. Inside the ramshackle building, which resembled an old VFW dance hall, a seemingly small room was packed with soul music, billowing smoke, and black people. As far as I could tell, I was the only white girl there, and although it was unnerving, my confidence was pumped up by some bizarre tingling of unknown knowledge that was guiding me towards the bar. As I pushed my short stature trepidatiously through the thick mass of elbows and dance moves, 
A brilliant face barreled through the crowd, smiling at me like a long-lost memory. It was the guy from the van, and he was literally beaming with that golden halo of light still surrounding his head. He was astoundingly handsome and tall and wore a brown corduroy blazer with mustard-colored elbow patches, which gave a nuanced hint of intelligence. Without any formal introductions, he put his arm around me and tucked me into his body, which was scented with the manly smell of lager-filled cologne. I had arrived too late to see his band, but that was of lesser importance now. With one single hug, I could feel that crazy carousel of emotions go spinning around and around with no idea where it was going to stop. One thing was for damn certain, I had made the right decision to come to the Owls Club tonight. It may have seemed like slutty behavior, having sex in the back seat of my tiny red Toyota Corolla with a perfect stranger, but it wasn't. I was going with the flow of otherworldly knowledge, and I was trusting in something bigger than myself. The fates had collided, and I was making out hard and heavy with a dude named Ronnie, who was unfathomably the brother of my old friend Charles. Charles and I had worked together at Pizza Hut, which was one of the three jobs I had while being pregnant. I would go directly from a shift at Kmart to Pizza Hut, both being in the same shopping complex, and Charles would have to do the lion's share of the work while I rested my head on the counters, disappearing into deep, unabated naps. Charles never squabbled about this and actually encouraged me to rest. He was a very good man, and he was inexplicably convinced that his brother Ronnie and I would make a great couple. Ronnie was a musician, and Charles thought we had a lot in common. I was too foggy, preoccupied, and hormonal to consider such a thing, so I would just chuckle and agree. Yeah, you're probably right. Maybe I'll meet him someday. And I did, with absolutely no intervention on the part of Charles. Ronnie took me back to his apartment where I basked in the enigmatic nature of this man. The satin amber sheets in which he tucked me under were the first clue that I had stumbled upon a person of mystifying qualities. And the second was his music. There's no other way to say it. Ronnie blew my mind. The smell, the look, the atmosphere of this man was one thing, but when he picked up his guitar and sang, I understood exactly what the wise old brother of his knew about the both of us. We were kindred spirits cut from the same cloth, two people who defied categorization. 
The songs that Ronnie had written for his band, Vitamin 3D, were without genre. They were the amalgamation of all his influences, which in turn created its own soulful, undefined, bohemian thing. I knew well enough that good musicians have their own sound, made even better when the sound is familiar to the ear, but stands out as something unique and different. And that is what I heard in this small, exotic bedroom furnished with nothing more than a bed, guitars, and wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. From the first strum and vocal hum of his slightly jazzy, faintly bluesy, soul train sounds with a bent towards new wave, every muscle in my body relaxed, producing the warmest wave of tranquility which felt like a shot of pure pharmaceutical narcotics, but was in actuality the joy of love spreading through my body. I was tantalized by my incredible luck. I was pretty sure that I had just slept with the coolest black dude in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I braced myself for the heartbreak that I knew would come. I was out of my league with this guy, and I wondered how he would inform me of such. But it didn't go as my low self-esteem prescribed. Ronnie wasn't a dream come true because the he of him was beyond my imagination. And that is why, when I was with him, I felt like I was trespassing in someone else's life or walking on a balloon that may pop at any minute. But there was no denying the genuineness of his love embrace or the hours into days that we spent slip sliding away on those satin amber sheets under the moonbeams that turned into the sun's rays, coming up only for water, food, and air. With Martha, there had been time in between, so I didn't know how exhausting new love could be. It was almost as consuming and unrelenting as a drug addiction, and Ronnie and I had been at this love game for a month already. One glorious, drug-free month. I never mentioned the teas and blues to Ronnie because I forgot to care. And the track marks, which graffitied my body, never came up in conversation. My plan was that love would cure me, and, if possible, I would never have to share my dirty little secret with him. Because for the first time ever, being a drug addict made me feel sleazy as I sat next to the goodness of true love. Being experienced but still naive in the power of addiction, I didn't realize that it didn't quite work like that. And... When I finally untangled myself from the bedsheets of romance 
in order to get some errands done. I found myself cruising through the projects looking to score. The inevitable was a double-edged sword of a day. The first shot in a month's time was pretty much like heaven. The smell, the taste, the joy, the nod. And I was sad to find that it was just about as spectacular as love itself. But this shot came with something new. And the residue of the teas and blues, besides being a yellow chalk in the medicine bottle, was guilt. Love was dirty and manipulative, and I loved teas and blues. But that love was turning in on itself, and I was about to find myself living in the paradox of loving Ronnie and hating myself. I may have been free had I never taken that first shot in a month's time, but as it turned out, I wasn't free. And the next Jones came on quickly like gangbusters, and it wouldn't let me keep quiet about it. Ronnie and I were lying on the floor of my apartment, enraptured in the lover's gaze, talking sweet and silly nothings when it hit. The sense of reality that came over me was sad, but more than anything, urgent. How could I disrupt this tender moment to go do something so dirty and despicable and try and keep it secret? I tried to think up a good lie to get myself to the projects, but I couldn't. Love had turned my brain to mush. I also didn't want to use the word junkie. It sounded so definite. But my options were limited, so I decided to just go with the truth and see where it got me. The worst thing that could happen, happened. Ronnie was into it, and he wanted to try teas and blues. I was relieved that he didn't hate me, but secretly I wanted an ultimatum. I knew this was another turning point, and I was hoping that he would stop me, because unlike Robert, I knew Ronnie could. I would have done anything he told me just to stay nurtured in a strong embrace. Ronnie's body was manly, and I needed a strong, firm man more than anything in my life right now. But as this double-edged sword of a day would have it, like a Coke blue speedball, I buzzed high and then low, all within the same breath. Do unto others. When I first met Ronnie, he was a sophisticated man, strolling gallantly down a path to success. He had a good job as the manager of a restaurant, his band was very popular, and he enamored people, which is common for those born under the sign of Libra. 
After bearing witness to my relationship with Martha, my friends and family were hopeful. There was no denying this man's potential, but all that changed when he moved in with me and let me stick a needle into his arm. I was happy to have a new drug buddy, but deep inside I felt like an asshole. And as his track marks accumulated, my guilt and disgust deepened. I wanted all this to stop before it got too late because the crime scene, which was my life, was destroying another human being. And I was smart enough to know better, but not strong enough to stop. Unfortunately, Ronnie liked it, and he didn't seem concerned about where our hobby would take us. He also liked me, and we loved getting high together. And naturally, we became junkie predictable. Doing crimes, going to jail, pawning all of our belongings, including, with great remorse, Ronnie's guitar. We'd get jobs, get fired from jobs, and soon enough, we became ostracized from just about everybody we knew, including Ronnie's family, who hated me with very good reason. When Ronnie got arrested for the first time, we didn't have a telephone. So the bass player in his band, Mick, came by to let me know. Because every penny added up to the $20 needed for a set, I didn't want to waste any money on a payphone, so instead, I saved my coins by going directly to the Pulaski County Jailhouse to find Ronnie myself. The officer at the front desk told me that they were not holding anyone by that name. I asked him to please check again. He said, No, Ronnie Fulton was not there. I asked if maybe he was somewhere else waiting to be brought to this jail. And with the irritation of someone with protruding hemorrhoids, the cop replied with an emphatic, No, he is not on his way to this jail and they have no record of him being arrested. A fear came over me. Was Ronnie trying to leave me? Had he and Mick concocted this ruse to get him out of our dark life together? I could see why he would, and with great suspicion and terror, I drove to Mick's house to see if I could detect a scam. Mick seemed totally innocent and just as concerned as I was. He told me that Ronnie had called him collect, and before he spoke to him, an operator informed him that the call was coming from the Pulaski County Jailhouse. Now I was getting scared. There was only one explanation. The cops must have beaten Ronnie up real bad or possibly killed him, and now they were trying to hide their crime. They were trying to make Ronnie disappear. Freaking out, I went to the public defender's office that was located right next to the jail. I spoke to a very nice young man who seemed genuinely concerned. He told me to wait in the lobby while he went to check a few things out. 
He was gone for quite some time before he brought me into his office and shut the door. Ronnie was in jail, and he had been there the whole time. The lawyer had just seen and spoken with him. Relieved but curious, I asked if Ronnie's records had been lost or if the officer was just lying to me. He told me that he was lying. I asked him why. He said he wasn't sure, but he had his suspicions. The reality of what he told me reminded me of how much I hated Little Rock, Arkansas. The lawyer suspected racism. He said that the officer I had spoken to was probably prejudiced, and because Ronnie and I didn't fit into his stereotype of an interracial couple, he came down extra hard on us. I asked him what he meant by that, and without hesitation he said, you both seem very intelligent. On the inside, I smiled from ear to ear. Wow, a lawyer just told me that I seemed intelligent. That put a little pep in my step, until the lawyer then informed me that Ronnie would be gone for a month. There was nothing domestic about the way we lived, and our apartment was filled with the random items of a minimalistic lifestyle. I wanted to change all that before Ronnie got home, so I set about creating whatever cozy I could. An artist had lived there before us, and she left several boxes of children's watercolor paint. I used them to paint the bathroom, and the end result was a room that resembled the innocence of an Easter egg. The pure pastels of faded green and pink were incredibly soothing, and this became my favorite room to shoot up in. I would sit in the bathtub for hours, just enjoying the calming, transparent colors, believing somehow their purity would wash me clean. In a little nook, with lots of light, I created a tiny office that was more for me than for Ronnie. I put a piece of wood on two cinder blocks and two pillows on the floor for chairs. It was a good place to set up a shot and then use the old cranky typewriter to write poems and rants about what a loser I was. My addiction was no longer cute or cool and I wrote word after word about how weak and tired I was and that all I wanted was to be a good person. Writing had taken the place of music only because my stereo was in the pawn shop and all my albums had been sold to the used record store. The pawn shop would only give me $2 for the typewriter, so I kept it. For a while, anyway. <laughs> <laughs>